welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I am Boomer. And full disclosure, this is the second time we're recording this episode that you're hearing right now. It's Lanyap to the Lanyap. <laughs> uh, we had some technical issues. Um, we've also been dealing with some malfunctioning AC units. So we're sweaty. We're tired. We're going to skip the usual what have you been watching lately recaps. We're going to get straight into the nitty gritty of what we're talking about today, which is hardcore pornography. Yeah. You're not going to get to hear us talk about our flooring projects, our attics, or us chat about a Star Trek keyboard or the Star Trek or Star Wars novels. You're going to miss all of that. It only lives in our hearts forever and ever. We're going to get to it. Sorry about that, everybody. But, you know, when it comes to Star Trek, I'll probably bring it up again someday. So, you know, all hope (laughs) is not lost. Who gives a shit what we're up to? Nobody cares. (laughs) I do. I always want to know what my favorite podcasters are doing in their free time. (laughs) The question to an unknown was shot only a few years before the rising of hates. And it's like the film is an omen in and of itself. A last glimpse of freedom and sexual friendship before the horror. How was this miracle of a film made? Who was behind the camera? It's still quite a mystery. So a minor miracle happened recently. I ordered a copy of a French porno that um, had been re-released by Altered Innocence, which is a film distribution label that I really admire. I ordered a copy and it came with an extra disc. Apparently there was a factory problem with the Blu-ray that I ordered, so they sent out extras fixing the issue. So then I suddenly had two copies of this hardcore porno from the 80s that I didn't know what to do with really, except that it is cited as partial inspiration for Knife and Heart, which is one of your favorite films. Absolutely is. Favorite film of the new millennium. Almost unseated favorite film of all time. Absolutely delightful. Unbelievable that it was seen by anybody other than myself and maybe a dozen people on Earth combining things that I would think would only be of interest to me. The late 70s, early 80s gay porn scene, the giallo film aesthetic, lots of electronic music from M83. It really is like a fever dream of a movie that I would want someone to make for me as like a special gift. And it's shocking to me that not only was there someone out there who made it, intentionally but that everyone else at swamp flicks loved it as much as i did or maybe not as much but definitely loved it it listed among our favorite movies of the decade and our favorite movies of 2019 i think britney was the only one who had it as her number one besides you but your love for it is unmatched at least among the crew i pre-ordered that dvd i could (laughs) not wait i immediately flipped it around to the even more giallo cover because you know it's a DVD, so it has that thing where you can pull out the cover when you bend it backwards and then change it around so it has an even more giallo cover when it's sitting on the shelf. Actually, I really like Ultra Innocence's packaging for that. And um, the one for Wild Boys and for the porno we're watching today both came with like pull-out posters as well. I think Knife and Heart had a poster fold-out too. I like that they put a little extra care into like the physical packaging for the stuff. When we did Knife and Heart for the podcast last year... James and I talked a little bit about the scene that it was supposedly recreating this, like you said, this like early eighties French hardcore porno scene, 
But when I listened to interview clips and the one I pulled for the episode from director Jan Gonzalez, what he said was like, really, it was only like five or six movies that he was pulling from. Like, it's not like there was just an overflow of like hyper creative hardcore porno at the time. There were like these very specific films that he was enraptured by. And one of them was this movie equation to an unknown from 1980. And that's the one that I sent you in the mail. I mailed you across state lines, hardcore (laughs) pornography with really no warning um, until I'd already sent it in the mail. I was like, wait, that's a little strange that I was sending something like that unsolicited. But I just was really impressed by the fact that this director was so in love with this very specific pocket of filmmaking that only existed for a small amount of time and pushed Altered Innocence to lovingly restore and redistribute this lost porno that he had seen on a VHS and was like taken in with. So this is not the kind of movie that we usually talk about in the show. This is not like a narrative film that happens to have erotic elements. This is like a series of sexual encounters, even in the DVD listing, instead of like scene selections, they have like encounters, encounters and they're listed like one through 10. The biker, the locker room, the orgy, they have very specific names that are almost poetic in their brevity. Yeah. So you can skip to your favorites too later. <laughs> But it's not like normal pornos and the fact that it's not like trying to turn you on at all times. This is from like an era when porn was trying to be seen as like a legit art form. In the wake of the surprising financial and box office success of Deep Throat. And this one's tact, I think, is even more serious than maybe some of the American ones because it's like this like pretentious French version of that where it's like trying to be seen as this melancholy work of art about like sadness and like the sort of emptiness of these like sexual encounters with strangers so it has like a melancholic mood that you would not normally see in narrative pornography so first of all you did send me this unsolicited and i did have half a mind to report you to swamp flicks hr no i'm just kidding (laughs) which is also (laughs) me which is a bad (laughs) it's a bad system (laughs) my god drain the swamp flicks um yeah no i i was completely open to it as soon as you mentioned it but i was extremely puzzled when i got that message that was like I'm sending you something in the mail, but don't open it until we talk. I'm like, oh boy, is it is it an antidote to something? <laughs> and it was, ironically, an antidote to melancholy. No, I'm just kidding. It was. It actually is not an antidote to melancholy. It is an inductor of melancholy. I did find it interesting. In a way, when we talked about Shirley, I mentioned that I would have enjoyed it more had it been about a fictional... Shirley Jackson pastiche author from the 50s rather than presenting itself as this is Shirley Jackson and she did those things. And with this, I'm trying not to turn into one of those YouTube people who's like, here's how I would fix every single movie. I definitely don't want that to be my persona or my goal. But with this film, the explicit parts were much less interesting to me than what would charitably be called the narrative parts. So I would say this movie is about like the inner erotic imagination of one character. It's this French man who rides around on a motorcycle, um, seemingly at random, getting into these like cruising scenarios where he's picking up strangers. I want to say like the outskirts of Paris. I'm not really sure what city this movie is actually set in, but 
what we see is him both experiencing sex or just witnessing sex or finding a sexual attraction to strangers as he's out and about on his motorcycle and then later reconjuring these fantasies either when he's alone or when he's having sex with his long-term partner. So the movie is explicitly sexual. Like the first sexual act you see is analingus. Uh, like it really just like dives right into like something other than just like soft core eroticism that you'd see in like mainstream American right. movies. Like it really is just like a porno explicitly. So. Yeah. It does sort of set the tone a little bit initially. Cause there's the impact of body upon body on the soccer field. And then even once the two who are the, the pair that are going to go off and move from regular massage to erotic massage, the other members of the soccer team sort of have like a innocent, an innocent shower grab assery period of time. (laughs) Yeah, we don't really want to put strict boundaries on what in this film is real and what is merely a matter of the main character's imagination. But if there's anything that's real, it is him watching that soccer game. And there is an older man who's attempting to cruise there as well, who sort of stalks off and away from the field once he realizes that he's not going to be getting any play, which is an interesting aspect in a film that is largely otherwise a mix between celebration of sexuality and melancholia about it. Celebration in the sense that our main character never has any doubt that he is going to score with every single person that he encounters and every single person that he makes eye contact with and rubs his groin. They're all going to be open to sexual contact with him. There's never a moment where not only it does it not happen that he is rejected and something, some sort of homophobic violence occurs, but you never even get the sense that that's possible, despite the fact that gay porn, like of the present, is still littered with narratives that are like, oh, I'm straight, oh, and I'm convinced, or oh, I didn't think that I would be into this. But here, everybody is just like, yeah, it's like this land of eternal sexual gay freedom that also is tinged by the sadness because of what you mentioned earlier with the sort of emptiness of those sexual encounters. Yeah. And the emptiness I think is coming from the main character too. like his confession at the end of the film to his boyfriend, or it seems like they've been together like a long time. And like maybe the initial erotic spark is like faded. So maybe boyfriend is kind of like a weak term for that. But he basically says like, I wish I could love only you. But instead, he's, like, drawn to these, like, encounters with strangers. And the film is unclear whether these are actually happening or if it's just his spank bank. Especially by the final scene where every sexual encounter he has, like, whether it's watching those soccer players at the beginning or having sex with, uh, like, a gas station attendant who pumps his gas or, like, construction workers that happen to be around the cruise spot where that gas station attendant takes him they all converge at the end when he's having sex with his partner, he closes his eyes and suddenly he's in this like grimy warehouse where every man he's had sex with over the course of the film is suddenly in bed with him and like jerking off on his chest. So like all of a sudden you're like clear that like, Oh, the reality of the film is definitely loose. It's mostly about his erotic imagination and like storing these fantasies for later. 
the same way that a lot of people like when they're with their partner like you can close your eyes and like imagine like some other like erotic situation to like heighten the sensation of the moment and there's like kind of a sadness to that like he it's not that he doesn't love this person, but he feels like a little like constricted by the monogamous boundaries of their relationship. Whether or not that is enough to carry a 140 minute movie where there often isn't a score and there often isn't any dialogue. And when there is a score, it's like really sad and kind of despondent is up for debate. I think this movie has a lot of the same Euro horror sensibilities from the seventies and eighties that knife and heart has. It's got that, like, Jalo like, primary color cross-lighting. A lot of, like, characters are framed in, like, these, like, doorways and window frames and, like, mirrors. So it's, like, really playing with this, like, psychedelic horror from the era, imagery-wise. Halos of light against nondescript brick walls and sort of an impressionistic darkness. Yeah, and the director is a painter. His name is Francis Savell. I didn't get to see the extra feature where they like showed him in his studio. That's something you got to watch, but he is like someone who is trying to make this salacious erotic picture into like a visual form of art. Um, I'm curious whether that worked for you. Like, is this a good movie or is this just like a, you know, curio that like is like background fodder for knife and heart, like where you can imagine that this is just one of the movies they happen to be making in that other picture. Well, you pointed out that the editor of Equation to an Unknown is when she's credited at the end is a woman, mm-hmm. just as the director, editor, studio runner of Knife and Heart is also a woman. And then other elements that were taken from it, the interchangeability of these curly-haired, curly, floppy-haired Euro-twinks of the late 70s, early 80s. And so that knowledge did give me a greater depth of appreciation for what I was watching when I was watching Equation to an Unknown. But whether or not I would think of it as a good movie on its own, you know, there are definitely images that stick with you in a way that we've really moved away from populist pornography into now, if you log into any kind of site or you just access any kind of site, log into, I sound like I'm 180 years old. Whenever you just like go to <laughs> Pornhub or whatever, a lot of it is amateur stuff that people have shot on their own phones. Like there's a complete realism to it that has kind of gotten rid of any kind of artistry like you see with a film like this which is it's not like it's art first and pornography second it's porn first like there's (laughs) there shouldn't be any mistake about that but there are shots like you did mention the mirrors and the fact that our main character does go home and there's a sort of standing mirror and also a large circle mirror both of them on one wall. And then when he gets in bed, the bed itself is also against a third mirror. So there's a lot of ambiguity in the sense that it's like, how much of this is an examination of the self? How much of it is a reflection of the self rather than something that actually happened in his real life? Or rather, he went to a cafe and he saw a hot construction worker and also a hot guy playing pinball and then imagined them going to suck each other off in a bathroom. But an image is in the mirrors, the image of the gas station attendant being left behind in the middle of an offbeat road 
as the main character pulls away on his motorcycle. That receding shot and like the cold, harsh light of day. The way that the bread... The baguettes? The baguettes. The second time in a row, somebody says, hey, do you know of a quiet place? Somebody is like, oh, hey, right over there, there's the shack where like the the train foremen gather. It's almost like an inception level of uh, getting to a quieter and quieter place. Like... <laughs> They have this like blowjob in a tunnel and then they're like, let's go even more private. But the more private space actually has more men in it um, having sex. <laughs> like it's, it's like a more secluded area with more people indulging in the same activity. There are overhead shots. Uh, like there's the shot where he's laying back along the length of the body of the motorcycle, mm. which is kind of like almost a macho shot in a way that you think about like, oh, a man and his machine and merging as something that's part of like predominant heteronormative culture, especially with like motorcycles and they're so manly and I ride a Harley and I watch American Chopper and I have the exact same relationship with my dad that the American Chopper guys do. It's not healthy. There's a weird sort of subversion of the heteronormativity of the motorcycle as the like macho male fantasy in that it becomes a prop as part of their sexual play, which also is something that continues to come up in contemporary pornography as well. Also, that shot just reminded me a lot of Knife and Heart, especially the first kill outside of the club where the junkie is shooting up in the abandoned in the car. car. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a very similar above the head shot. There's a specific kind of lighting in horror films from that era that this one repeats in that same scene where it looks like it's lit only by a flashlight. So it looks like you're watching like a crime scene. <laughs> and uh, this one's very still and like formally framed. So it's like very like symmetrical. So there's like an art to it, but it still has that kind of grimy, like almost like you stumbled upon like two strangers blowing each other in the dark under like one street lamp. You know, there's something very illicit about that when a lot of the movies very tender and, I don't want to say romantic, but it's not like that harsh. Like there's something very like harshly masculine about that exchange. Just the slight jingle of pocket change pulsing. <laughs> is that a why reference? Yes, it is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you're right. There's an awful lot of artistic eye that's present here in a way that you don't expect. There's the the spiral staircases, which are very giallo. When our main character, the first time he goes home, he does like go all the way up to an extreme upper floor in this place that he's living in, even though it's empty. You know, there's the cries of babies. So hot. It's very strange to hear a crying baby in a <laughs> porno film. <laughs> Later, there's like waves lapping and like women crying. I think in the background during the climactic orgy as well. It's like what during is this the for? orgy, there's a woman laughing on the soundtrack, oh, laughing, and it it's yeah. looped. It's the same laugh that comes back kind of over and over again, which lends itself to the sort of like droning nature of the soundtrack, which is comprised of sort of sporadic notes. Like some sort of bizarre, like classical music, but played on like a like an electronic harpsichord, and the music in the final scene where the two characters are riding a bike down. Two characters are riding a bike down a hill. The music in that scene it sounds like it was reproduced by M eighty three to as part of the soundtrack for Knife and Heart. 
So it has this bizarre soundtrack, which does lend itself to the dissonance that's kind of omnipresent throughout the film, where every cum seems like a sad cum. <laughs> and it's this weird mixture of this land of eternal sexual freedom in which there's never a chance or even a fear of rejection because everything is taking place in our main character's mind, presumably. But like, as it's presented on screen, it's this like suburbs of, of Paris is where it's shot. And everyone just has this like pure openness and sexual friendship. But these like harsh realities cut in. And at the end of every scene, everybody seems kind of unfulfilled. When we talk about things that are escapist, pornography is perhaps the most escapist thing that humans produce. And yet this film, if we can call it a film, which we're gonna, and we are, it's not that escapist because even the things about it that lend themselves to fantasy have this undercurrent of emptiness, sadness, loss, melancholy, and like the loss of something that can never be regained. Even in the final scene where he has all of his spank bank all-stars in bed with him, there's an image of the junkie character crawling across the floor to give this like half-hearted blowjob to this other participant who's just kind of hiding in the corner. It almost looks like it's out of a horror film. Like there's something really haunting about the urge to like continue the sexual activity between the two of them, even though they're barely awake and barely like human at that point. There's something like sort of haunted about the film, which if you listen to the special feature of Jan Gonzalez talking about him discovering the movie, he talks about how he was kind of haunted by it. He like discovered it out of the blue on a VHS tape and didn't understand where it was coming from, but just sort of was taken in by the mood of it. And the pull quote on the cover of the Blu-ray is um, Young Gonzalez saying, this is the most melancholic porn film I've ever seen. Uh, and I think that that is generally true. <laughs> like it really just like reaches for this haunted mood that feels alarmingly unique. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about like porn as something that's being like reclaimed on like an academic level recently. Yeah. You sat through me explaining my needlessly overlong explanation of my philosophy about what horror should be. I want to hear about your discussion of porn as art. I think there are a lot of like solid arguments for that. The one that most people buy into is like the idea that it's documentary. Like these are low budget films kind of like horror was at the time where you are allowed to experiment stylistically because there is a built-in audience. Like you can get your weird art films sold because people will come to see killings in the horror sense or come to see on-screen penetration in the hardcore sense. But they're also documentary in the sense that because they don't have like a real budget, you're watching people in their real wardrobe, often without permits on the street being like documented in their time. Right. That's especially valuable in these gay pornos because this is like pre-AIDS. So this is like a community that will be completely like ravaged within the next like 10 years by a health pandemic. That definitely accentuates the like haunted mood of this film in particular. But even in like more celebratory films where there's like more of a party atmosphere, there's something to that as well where it's like documenting people in their prime 
before something fucking horrific tore through their community. You especially see that in Evan Perchel's movie, Ask Anybody, uh, which cuts a bunch of these movies together. It like takes that documentary quality and pieces a narrative out of it where it takes like over a hundred of movies just like this and shows like a day in the life of someone cruising from the moment they wake up till they go to bed. Um, and like the full fantasy and the full like communal celebratory quality of that lifestyle, which is definitely something that like I would be more interested in because there were long periods of this in which it was just the porn parts and I got pretty bored personally. Yeah, there are long stretches in Equation to an Unknown without any dialogue or any score, and you're really just watching this sad, horny man on his motorcycle looking for the next blowjob. Uh, <laughs> I get that that can be trying on like a patience level. And I think another argument that Ask Anybody makes in particular is that this is an early version of like queer filmmaking. Um, right. It was easier for gay directors to get funding for this kind of movie with like a built-in audience. So like years or even decades before um, the new queer cinema era with like Gregor Rocky and Todd Haynes, they were able to make movies about gay people doing gay things that had nothing to do with any kind of like tragedy or like coming out story. Like it's just them sort of existing as they are, even if they're having more sex than most people reasonably have in like a morning to night day in the life. That is like a filmmaking genre that has its own tropes and tones and like communal space that otherwise like doesn't exist on film. So I I agree with all of that academic sense of like why this stuff is interesting that has like enriched my experience with it. But I feel like I am engaging with this stuff on more of a direct level where like Basically, I am disheartened by how much sex has been removed from mainstream filmmaking in recent years. With the corporate takeover of Disney in particular, films have just been completely de-eroticized. And I miss this openly honest eroticism in filmmaking. Like when I grew up, erotic thrillers were more of like a norm in the industry and like were popular like you could see them in the theater with like other people and now they're more like relegated to these sort of like genre outliers like stranger by the lake or we are the flesh or knife and heart or the wild boys which is like a personal favorite of mine i feel like to see like intense honest eroticism on the screen you have to go to these like tiny indie movies so to revisit in particular like old porno films it's drawing me back into this era where there were like full narrative feature films with explicit sexuality in them. And there's kind of a comfort in that. Like I get to revisit this subject that has been like completely disregarded by well-funded movies in recent years. And I'm specifically drawn to that Cronenberg style of narrative where someone is erotically drawn to something that is actively bad for them but they cannot help it moth to flame yeah exactly like there is something universally relatable about like being physiologically drawn to something that you know will kill you and not being able to help it and my favorite horror films specifically are deliriously horny movies like that like videodrome and stranger by the lake 
and the wild boys like i'm really drawn to movies where you know that this thing that makes you horny is bad for you but you keep going back to it uh because it feels so good and it eventually kills you and that's when the end credits roll so that really makes me think about i don't remember exactly which one it was that we were watching or talking about but my reiteration that just don't put your dick in things. <laughs> and I always think about the first Masters of Horror episode that Argento did, Jennifer, which starred America's sweetheart, Stephen Weber, as like a police detective who comes across this woman with this like fantastically sexy body, but she has like a horrifying monster face. And she does like eat a cat at one point and he just can't stop having sex with her. And that's like the extreme delineation of, I'm sorry, Dario, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, but that's like the absolute worst way to tell that story. And what you're talking about is a desire to see that story well told. And I think that we do see that in Equation to an Unknown, but it's not always necessarily what I seek out in my entertainment, because it definitely was the thing that I found most compelling about Knife and Heart. It was the relationship between the main character and her former lover that the end of this relationship had driven her completely over the edge. And they go to, or she goes to that scene in the lesbian bar where there is the sort of dramatic theater troupe performance of like a woman who loves like a bear and that like love (laughs) that like completely destroys them both, the compulsion of it. And her own compulsion where she loves her ex-lover to the point of destroying both of them, destroying that relationship because she keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to see how far it can go. It's like a test of the boundaries of that love in a way that like, I completely understand. And I love to see that too. But like you identify the emerging sexlessness of Hollywood film as the result of corporatization and commodification and homogenization. And I think that you're right, but I've always in my mind attributed it to changing social norms and changing technological access to erotic imagery, where when I was a kid, everybody has this, I assume, where anytime there was any kind of eroticism on screen, your parents would tell you to look or to cover your eyes and hum or what have you. My parents called it making noise, like, oh, they're making noise, cover your eyes. And that would happen in everything. Sitcoms, I remember specifically it coming out of nowhere when my family was watching Joe versus the volcano. There was like a love scene and they're not erotic in the sense that this film is erotic. Like they are sexless in their way because they are not explicit but i always attributed the lack of that in our contemporary film scene to the fact that anyone with an internet connection or even just like a smartphone at this point has access to like the most depraved shit that you can find and that just fulfills the need in a way that you no longer have to sort of hide your eroticism in like your horror films in order to give like teenage boys around the country a boner to help sell Friday the 13th. 
I think that's true to a great extent in that the heterosexual eroticism in particular is overrepresented. And I think yeah. that what makes Equation to an Unknown and other like hardcore gay films that are like, you know, feature length capital F films, like, you know, art in the cinematic sense, what makes them interesting is that like it's an underrepresented version of sexuality, at least in the context of like a full length narrative feature. But in my like ideal version of like the cinematic landscape, I want everyone's sexual id to be fully explored on the screen. <laughs> like I am specifically drawn to deliriously horny id whenever it is represented. So this movie is kind of a reprieve from that. It is like doing kind of the same thing, but it is from a different culture entirely. Like, it's basically this gay painter filmmaker making a movie about his own inner erotic imagination, which just happens to be like very melancholy uh, because he was kind of a sad, intellectually self-obsessed man. So this is like a great counterpoint to that stuff because it, the more representation you have of different like erotic imaginations, the less pressure there is for every film to be representative of everything. The slasher films in particular are like, almost like sexually repressive. They're like conservative in their sexuality. They want to see it, but they want to punish the teens who indulge in it. Right. Whereas this kind of movie doesn't have that punishment aspect to it. It's more representative of like the punishment is self-inflicted where it's like, I wish that I could be monogamous, but I don't fit into that. Those boundaries It's kind of the main conflict of this movie. Or even I am monogamous in my body, but not in my mind. Right. Even though we're sharing this like physical pleasure together, I might drift off and think about this construction worker I eyed on the street the other day. But I still, maybe it's the Catholic in me, I still identify a little bit with the um, self-conflict of both sides of that. We're like, I like for a movie to be deliriously horny and also like ashamed of itself at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got that here. I'm really into that conflict. You know what? That's fair. I, I get it. I see it. Because to me, the sadness, the sort of like guilt, the immediate post-climax guilt, something that I, I've seen plenty. In my mind, I was like, oh, I don't, I'm not enjoying this as part of this work of eroticism, but I can see what you're saying. Well, I, I guess I kind of want to know at this point, like, are you convinced that this is art? Or is this something that's only interesting as an artifact, like historically? Yes. You know, I may not have come to this exact same conclusion whenever we recorded this episode the first time, but maybe through the sheer magic of having lost that episode and being forced to like think <laughs> about it more again and longer, this is art. There's an art to it, if nothing else. The haunting shots with the mirrors, the receding, the tenderness of a hand on another hand at a pinball machine, the joyous downhill bike ride by people that we've never seen before, as far as I can tell. It's an entirely different cast and an entirely different mood. Like we're, We've been watching these like sort of despondent, emotionless sexual encounters, and then all of a sudden at the end, there's this like pure love between two people that we've never met before and it, it feels like 
you know, the initial romantic spark at the beginning of a relationship as opposed to what we've been watching the whole movie, which is like two people who've been with each other for a while and the mind starts to wander and there's a guilt to that. Um, so yeah, it feels like a completely different vision of man on man eroticism. Yeah. You know what? It is art. (laughs) (laughs) You're you, you got me, I guess. Who was it? Clarence Thomas. That was the, I know it when I see it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let me say this. Maybe it is art, but you're also um, totally in the right to be bored by it, which is sort of the uh, vibe I've gotten over this uh, double conversation that we've had, is that the movie can be a little trying on your patience. Yeah. Uh, The way a lot of pornography can be. Like, we're used to, in the internet age, just watching scenes and not necessarily watching, like, start-to-end feature-length narrative films with, like those lengthy reprieves from the plot where you're just watching like two people in bed doing their thing. So this can be a little patience trying and maybe it's more interesting on an academic level than it is on like a entertainment level sometimes. But I think if you are interested in porn as art, I think equation to an unknown is a great example of that. Um, Whether or not it's a little sadder than you would want your your porno to be um it, it does have like a visual style to it and it does have like a dream logic kind of surrealism to it that i think really lends itself to that kind of reading and that kind of like appreciation yeah if you are going to view pornography as art this is the one that you could do that with this is where to start it may not be where to finish no pun intended or it may be where to finish pun intended that time i guess but it's definitely a part of that rhetorical space and since we talked so much about knife and heart on this episode i will link to your full review of that we obviously didn't have enough time to get into like the full reasons why you love that movie and why like overlaps with so much of what you appreciate about horror in general but I think the review is one of my favorite examples of anything we've ever published, honestly, because it's such a specific personal self-obsession. <laughs> no, and I, I really appreciate that. I'm still touched by that description, even, even though you also said it before, <laughs> 75 <laughs> minutes ago, before I screwed everything up. But I'm still touched by it, and thank you. And maybe I'll link to my review of Ask Anybody, too, uh, since yeah. you know, we are trying to or at least i am trying to carve out this like space where we could talk about this like really like sexually explicit material in like a serious way which is difficult because america is a puritanical society in a lot of ways i don't know i think there is like a growing argument to be made of this transgressive side of filmmaking as like something worthwhile worth exploring equation to an unknown will test your patience i don't think ask anybody test your patience in the same way and it's one of my favorite movies i've seen all year so check it out next time it pops up in a film festival where you can rent it and it was potter stewart everybody it was potter stewart who was the supreme court justice who knew obscenity when he saw it please don't at me <laughs> i don't i don't need that in my life I'm, I'm hanging on by an erotic thread one of my favorite um tropes of this show is your um delusion that anyone listens to this uh, <laughs> usually just uh keep it on my desktop and it doesn't go anywhere yeah uh, <laughs> screaming into the void unless unless we talk about adulterers in which case we are the number one site 
on the internet, apparently, for the review of the film Adulterers. And you know what? All the more reason to talk about sexually explicit material, because I think people are searching for porn and accidentally stumble into our movie reviews sometimes. So maybe this is a uh, tact we should uh, pursue more often. That's Synergy with a capital S-I-N. That's Sin. (laughs) And uh, it's after Labor Day now. So we will be digging more into like spooky territory, I think, up until Halloween. We're just going to jump into full-on horror or at least spooky material in the next couple months. So next week we're going to be talking about Zombie Child, which is a another academic take on a salacious subgenre. It's it's a sort of like deconstruction of the zombie film as we've seen it in the last like 50, 60 years. So we're going to ease in from that probably into more and more just like goofy horror films as Halloween approaches. There are no rules this year. Society is completely broken down, so we can do this early, I think. Yeah, why not? Yeah, fuck it. Time is meaningless. (laughs) So we'll see y'all next episode talking about zombies and then other spooky shit after that. Peace out, everybody. Stay safe. Bye.